The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, I, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, uh, as we continue with our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. I had originally scheduled, and I was really looking forward to uh, talking with the author of a new book called Chasing the Ghost. His name is uh, Leonard Cole, and the book is about Nobelist uh, Fred Rains and the Neutrino. Um, and his, uh, uh, well, he won the uh, 1995 Nobel Prize in Physics and was considered by his uh, colleagues to be somewhat larger than life. And uh, Leonard Cole has written a biography about Fred Raines, and it's uh, kind of interesting, and he has a, a special perspective on it because he was, although they had only met twice, he was uh, his cousin. However, for some reason, we haven't been able to connect up with uh, Leonard Cole this morning. Welcome to live radio, folks. But I do have a uh, great interview to um, insert in its place that I did just uh, recently with um, Tana Amen, and uh, and and so we'll uh, we'll go to that and and uh, adjust as we as we need to. So. Stay tuned, and I'll talk with uh, author Tana Amen straight ahead. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a New York Times bestselling author, vice president of the Amen Clinics, a neurosurgical ICU trauma nurse, and a world-renowned health and fitness expert with a new book 
called The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child, How Persistence, Grit, and Faith Created a Reluctant Healer, which came out later, uh, or earlier rather, this year. And uh, her name is uh, Tana Amen, and she joins me by phone. Tana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm so glad to be here. Boy, I really struggled getting through that introduction. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a lot of <laughs> no that's worries. a lot of stuff to put out. The title of the book itself, um, you know, probably starts on the front of the book and finishes on the back. Um, but but seriously, this is a memoir and yes. one that was somewhat anticipated. Um, how so? I, the relentless courage of a scared child and how persistence, grit, and faith created a reluctant healer. Um, that's you. Yes. Yeah, it was It was an interesting journey. And, um, yeah, it took a long time for me to decide to write this. You know, there's a big difference between making the decision to sort of heal the trauma in your past and first coming face to face with it and even acknowledging that it was there, um, then deciding to heal it. But there's a big difference between that and actually making the decision to tell the world about it. <laughs> That's a big leap. I, I have a friend that, that always likes to, to joke about adversity and say, why is my life so much tougher than everybody else's? Um, but the truth is that we all have challenges, some greater than others. What were the challenges you faced that 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 you had to overcome to ultimately be somebody who could feel strong enough to write about it? You know, it's interesting that you say that you talked about your friend. Um, I did the opposite. I tend to minimize the things that happened in my life. I think it was a survival. Um, you know, just a survival technique that I used with not thinking, for me, it was just normal. It wasn't like I thought, oh, like I knew it wasn't normal, but at the same time, it was my normal. And so I thought, you know, it's not that bad, really, is it? But I knew it was. I knew it wasn't normal that, you know, my first memory at two was nearly drowning. My next memory was my uncle being murdered and a drug deal gone wrong. My other uncle was a heroin addict who lived with us. Um, my mother was a 16-year-old runaway who lived on the streets because her life was so bad growing up. Um, and, you know, things were rough when I was growing up. We were poor. We moved around a lot, you know, just trying to find a place to survive. Um, you know, I, there was sexual abuse. There were, there were things that happened in my youth that were, that were really ugly. And the funny thing is, is when you grow, well, not funny, but not funny, ha-ha, but odd, is that when you grow up in that environment, you begin to think, oh, this is just life. So I, I didn't realize that there was another option. And you just get through it. But, you know, finally, when I was 15, I developed, an, or 16, 15 or 16, I developed an eating disorder um, because I just, it just all came to a head. The anxiety just got so extreme. I felt like there was no escape and I just couldn't deal with it. And I developed an eating disorder sort of as a way to manage my anxiety. And then in my 20s, I got cancer that kept coming back, just repeatedly recurred. And that was when I finally hit such rock bottom, I went into this wicked depression. And I just thought, that's when I finally did what your friend did and went, this isn't normal, 
life is too hard, what is the point? And that was when I finally hit that point where I went, you know, other people don't have to go through this. If there's a God, he doesn't love me. Um, so what's the point of doing this? I'm wasting oxygen on the planet. You know, it's it's interesting that you say, you know, we get used to the environment we're in, good, bad, or indifferent. It, it's right, and it seems like the normal. I remember asking uh, uh, comedian and television personality Jimmy Walker, uh, who grew up in Harlem, and had become like Time Magazine's comedian of the year or something. And you know, I said, "Did you know?" that you were going to go into show business when you were growing up in Harlem and and that there was a lot for you to overcome to do that. And he said, no. He said, I, when I grew up in Harlem, I didn't know we were poor. Right. He said, it wasn't like we spent our weekends in the Hamptons. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so you don't you don't have anything to compare it to. Yeah, so it just seems like, well, this is where I am now, but here's where I want to be. Did you go through any any kind of part of um you know, as as looking at it as normal as saying, you know, I'd I'd like to do this when I grow up or I'd like to do this later in my life and and just believe that it was possible because your life wasn't tougher than everybody else's? Um, I don't think I got to the point where I thought I could be different than what my family was until I was in my teen years. And that's when it hit me that I love them. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be like this. When I was a teenager and finally able to see that other people lived differently, that's when it finally hit me. Because up until then, and I didn't even realize that I was actually pretty depressed as a kid. You know, children are supposed to be able to go out and explore the world. They're supposed to be able to go out, feel safe enough at home, that they have this safety net that they go out and they explore the world, and that's how they develop. That's a normal childhood, you know, development step. But I didn't do that because, you know, things were not safe in my house. And so because of that, I never felt safe. My mom was never home. I was a latchkey kid by the time I was five and taking care of myself. And because, so I never felt safe. And as a result, I learned to hide. So I didn't really notice that, that the rest of the world was a lot different, and I was pretty depressed um, from just hiding in my house until I was in my teens. And that's when I realized, you know, you're in high school, you know, you're in junior high, high school, and you realize my friends are different than me. And the few friends I had, I'm like, they live differently. Their parents are different, and that's what I want. And that's when I began to realize, okay, there is a different option. I have no idea how I'm going to get there. But I love my family, most of them anyways, but I don't want to be like them. And that's when it, the seed was planted. I had no clue, though, how that was going to happen. And I think in my 20s, when I got cancer and I, all at once I had to drop, I finally felt like things were starting to go my way. And all at once I had to drop out of school, quit my job, file bankruptcy because I couldn't pay my medical bills. And that's when it struck me, there's no way out. I'm stuck, just like my family. And I just lost my mind and went into this wicked depression and just thought there's no point. More with fitness expert and best-selling author Tana Amen. Straight ahead. <laughs> was a friend of mine I used to see it all the time as the sun would fade away 
never came to play Everybody said you better watch out Love will hurt you, yeah, there's no doubt Guess they just could not see The things she does for me She's always there on my darkest nights And all the others said, got no time Make a lunar forever I will be And there if you should fall I give you my own Nights go by and there's no trace I think I'm never gonna see her face again She proves me wrong She's been here all along What was I thinking to doubt true love? Far beyond the stars above I hope you can forgive me Cause I cannot forget That you were there on my darkest nights All the others said got no time Make a lunar forever I will be There if you should fall Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors.
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with fitness expert and best-selling author, Tana Amen, straight ahead. That wasn't the end of the story, unfortunately. I was put on a medication that did not agree with me. I was put on Prozac, and that was, for some people, that's a great medication. For me, it was not. <laughs> and it made me dangerously impulsive. And I, you know, I went from being sort of as a kid, you are a victim of your environment, of your circumstances. But in my 20s, when you know, I was put on that medication, I began to make some really bad decisions. That medication made me just really impulsive, and I made stupid decisions for about eight months. And it really could have just been dangerous for me. Like, and like so what, what that's in the of, book. What kinds of stupid uh, decisions? I mean, were you robbing banks or doing drugs? Or? <laughs> no, fortunately not. Fortunately, my moral compass didn't go that far off. Uh, <laughs> but, but no, stupid decisions with men. I mean, and, and I would, if you literally, if you said to me, oh, this sounds like a good idea, I didn't have, normally I went from being extremely anxious, like very, very anxious, and worrying about every decision to not thinking about it at all. If I was out and my friend said, oh, let's go do this, you know, it's like, oh, that sounds good. I ended up in Costa Rica on a dare and lost my passport. I ended up there on a dare. I had no clothes with me. I, I just left with nothing and ended up on a, there by myself with no passport. So I just did stupid stuff that I look back now and I'm like, what the heck? But this medication really um, affected me in a very, very negative way. And so it was another learning experience. And, you know, fortunately, the really interesting part, there's a point, there's a turning point in the book when I figure out that, okay, there is a way out of this. And, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And one of the mentors that showed up in my life, and this is one of my favorite parts of the book, is my uncle, the one who was the heroin addict, the one I was terrified of when I was young. He had gotten cleaned up, and when I was 25, he taught me the one word that changed my life, and that was responsibility. And he looked at me, and he said, how much responsibility are you willing to take for where your life is at? And, and I looked at him, and I go, how can I take responsibility for my childhood? How can I take responsibility for cancer? That's not my fault. He said, I didn't ask you how much blame you were willing to take. I asked you how much responsibility you were willing to take, which means the ability to respond. And it was this light switch moment. And I thought, you know, I don't have to take the blame. I don't need to be ashamed. But I want the ability to respond. And it changed everything for me. And, you know, when, you, when you're telling a story like this um, and, and you say something, uh, Tana, like, and everything changed for me. But there were steps Oh, absolutely. It did not just change overnight. You know, so it always sounds like that, Tana. It always sounds like <laughs> no. it. And poof, it was better. And <laughs> no, I, no, there was no magic wand. There was no magic wand. And it's really, I'm glad you pointed that out because what changed was my internal dialogue. What changed was my willingness to work. That's what changed, was my willingness to take responsibility. Um, no one just fixed it for me. Trust me. Um, but I came home, got myself, you know, together, got a job, went back to school. I did the work. So change doesn't happen in a straight line. There were, there were dips in that, you know, there were, there were raises and dips all along, but the trajectory went upward. And so, you know, it's in those, one thing we try to teach people at Amon Clinics where, you know, my husband, Dr. Daniel Amon, we see, we look at people's brains and we work with mental health. And one thing we really talk to people about is that it's in those downtimes when you fall 
don't be so scared of it. Go into the pain and look at it and learn. Because when you fall is when you learn. When things are good, no one's paying attention. It's good. It's when things are bad. When you have a bad day, you know, be curious, not furious. Take a look at that. And that's, that's what's really important to learn. But the trajectory went upward, and I was willing to do the work. Now, before you were taking Prozac, um, did you consider yourself to be having um, mental health issues? Oh, I was in a wicked depression, and it was the first time in my life. I fortunately didn't really think about taking my life, but I kept wishing I would die. Every day I wished I would die. So I guess, yeah, that's pretty much mental health issues. <laughs> so. um, but you talk about, you know, how tough things were for you as a young child. Um, yeah. Is there in there somewhere uh, the ability to discern a cause for mental health issues? Are you talking about as a child or as an adult? Can I look back on No, it? I'm talking about um, is there a cause and effect? Oh, absolutely. So here's what's interesting. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because I had a little girl and I thought, you know, how do I make this different for her? But another reason, there were two reasons. I wanted to change for the next generation, for my daughter. But also my health, my physical health was so bad, and I write about this in the book. I was always sick. I always had high fevers. Um, I got cancer. And these things seem to happen for no explainable reason, like just crazy things in my health. I've had 10 medical surgeries. So I went on this journey to try to figure out what the heck was going on. Why was I like so defective? And I learned something very fascinating. There's a lot, of, a lot of information and research done on adverse childhood reactions or experiences connected to um, a person's physical health. And so when I started to go down that trail, I realized something, not just one's physical health, but one's mental health. Your adverse childhood reactions, there's actually a quiz you can take. They actually developed it because they started to realize that when people experience, if you get a score of out of 10 questions they ask you about your childhood, if you get a score of four or more, you are dramatically more likely to have seven out of the ten most common causes of death. And I was, I was just mind blown by that. But that motivated me to, to change that for my daughter. And so, and we just adopted our nieces right before quarantine because it's my family. And um, my nieces were put into foster care because of the addiction and the abuse in their life and with their parents, my half-sister. So I wanted to change the next generation for my daughter, for my nieces. But when you really take a look at what early childhood trauma does to a person, physically, emotionally, and mentally, it's, it's pretty scary. It's, they say it's the, it's the equivalent of what happens to a soldier's brain coming back from war. You know, there's something interesting in this title I've been playing around in, in my head a little bit the last moment or so. Um, when you talk about how persistence, grit, and faith created a reluctant healer. And I, I was forming a question when I looked down at the title and, and saw maybe part of the answer already, that with all of the problems that you had... Um, you know, as a young child and, and growing up, um, what would what would steer you toward becoming 
a healer. I would think you'd want to stay as far away from healthcare as possible. So that's that's a great question. So I became a nurse, um, and I think I was drawn to it for a lot of reasons to heal myself, your curiosity with my family. But I went into trauma nursing, like physical trauma. So um, I was a neurosurgical ICU and level A trauma nurse, where people came in with you know blood and guts and their heads you know cracked open, gunshot wounds. I was really good with that. I was not good with what we call walkie-talkies, people with emotional traumas. I would have never gone into mental health, and that's because of my own experience. So how does someone like that marry a psychiatrist who wants to save the world? It was super weird. Um, (laughs) And I remember meeting my husband and thinking, I'm no way going to date a psychiatrist. I was going to end it early, never talk to him again. I remember feeling very odd. But I ended up liking him so much that I was there was this dilemma. And I had disconnected from most of my family. The only person I really didn't disconnect from was my mother. And I, that was out of survival. I thought, you know, I just can't deal with the constant drama and chaos that my family seems to follow my family or they create or whatever the problem is, I don't want any part of it. So that was where the reluctant healer comes in because I felt like I was being called back after I got myself out of that hole, after I made something of my life and I was successful and I was happy, all of a sudden I felt God or you know, this feeling tugging me, for me, it felt like God calling me back to help some of the people in my family. There's a couple of really good stories in there with my dad, who I hadn't talked to since for many years since I was a child, and I wrote him off. Um, I was being called back to help him, to help my sister, to adopt my nieces, and I didn't want to, because I knew that meant getting back involved with the drama. I, I knew what it meant, and so I was very reluctant, and I realized something in doing these things that I felt like I was being called to do. I didn't want to do it. And they say, if you win an argument with God, you lose. If you lose an argument with God, you win. I didn't want to do it. But in each of those cases, it was hard. But I, um, I ended up being the benefactor. I ended up learning so much and healing such a deep part of myself. So the help was for them, but the healing was for me. And I would have robbed myself of those healing opportunities, those moments, if I had turned down those chances. Now, that doesn't mean I don't draw boundaries. I draw boundaries. There are certain people in my family I steer clear of. It's like, I love you, but I'm going to love you from a distance. (laughs) But I'm much more open to looking at it now. Well, how did you first meet Daniel? So we actually met online, believe it or not, um, because both of us were so busy that dating was not something that was going to come easy for either of us. I was a single mom. I had a two-year-old, and he, you know, his life is so huge, and he doesn't drink or anything like that, so he's not going out to meet people. Uh, we met online, and then I realized after I was talking to him, this is before his life was as big as it is now, um, so he wasn't, you know, on television like he is now and things like that, um, but I realized that he was a psychiatrist, and as soon as I realized that, I'm like, oh, nope, I'm <laughs> not going to date Well, I was going to say, he must be... He must be fairly charming because um, I've I've seen this happen many times where somebody in a room full of people announces that they're a psychiatrist and the whole room goes quiet. Oh yeah, no, I, I wanted <laughs> nothing to do with being. I wanted nothing to do with psychiatrists, and I had been, and I had also been hurt by psychiatrists because, and my grandmother had been hurt. There's a story in the book about my grandmother, you know, who had been hurt by psychiatrists because, you know, there's just. It's a long story, but I didn't really want to get involved with that. I also didn't want to be psychoanalyzed, and I just didn't want to be involved with the psychiatrist. 
But when I met him, he was very charming. I also loved what he did. I thought it was so interesting. This idea of looking at people's brains and, and not guessing, but actually having, you know, solid something solid to look at. Oh, it might be brain health, not just your fault when something goes wrong in your life. Right. And let's just guess and try a bunch of medications. Um, so I, I really liked that. And all of a sudden, I found myself being very drawn to him. He's very well, mental health. He's really very does. grounded. Really, mental health can have two parts, one that's physical and the other that's emotional. Absolutely. So we say it happens in four circles, not two. It's biological, what's going on with your body, your brain, um, you know, your hormones, everything. But then also psychological, how are you managing your thoughts? Your thoughts lie. They lie a lot. You have to challenge them. Uh, you have to manage your mind. But then there's also the um, social circle, who you hang out with matters. You know, if you're an alcoholic trying to get sober, you don't go to a bar and hang out with other alcoholics. So you need a social circle that supports you. But then also your spiritual circle, something that is bigger than you, that's beyond yourself. Um, purposeful people live up to 11 years longer when they believe in something beyond themselves. And so we, when we treat people, we treat according to those four circles. If you were second-guessing dating a psychiatrist and second-guessing, you know, this this transition you were about to experience of of going into brain and or mental health, um, what was it like for you to write this book and revisit all of the pain that made you reluctant to begin with? Oh, boy. So... Yeah, that's interesting. He he pushed me for a while, um, and I didn't want to do it. Uh, you know, my, I needed my daughter to be of a certain age where she understood what was happening, you know, what happened in my past. My daughter's life has been very different than mine was, and I'm happy about that. Um, but I had a woman come up to me one time at an event where, um, you know, we were, we were at this event, and she said, I, I just want to thank you. I've been following you. For like, I follow you for a long time, and I've I've read everything that you've put out, and I just and she starts crying, and she's from Nigeria, and she starts crying, and she said, "I pray every day that God will do for my life what He's done for yours." And I realized in that moment I had not really told people much about my life, and I thought, you know, if if me exposing some vulnerabilities in my life can help someone else who's been through trauma recover or at least go start the journey of recovery then it's probably worth it because I hadn't really told people much. So what she, was, what she was thinking she knew about me was very little. And I thought, you know, maybe it's worth it to, to expose those things and, you know, risk the embarrassment because people are going to criticize you. And when they criticize you for writing nutritional books, which is what I usually do, who cares? But when they criticize your life, it's a little different. So I thought, you know, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time because I, I once again felt that nudge where it's like, this is something that could help someone at least begin the journey because there's really no reason to feel shame for the past. We need to let that go. We need to let the shame go from the past. It's, it's right now. It doesn't matter where you've been. It matters where you're going. How could it not, the process of writing the book, not at least be in part pouring salt in old wounds? So for the most part, it was fairly healing, uh, there were a couple of things that were really hard. Some of the sexual abuse stuff was hard. Um, that was a little hard to write about. Um, 
And there were a couple of things that, because the people in my book are still alive, <laughs> so uh, most of them are still alive. There are awkward. Only that are not. <laughs> yeah, that was awkward. So I had to, there are many things. Funny thing is, people read the book and they're like, wow, this is intense. And I'm like, that's actually the PG-13 version. Because I, there are many things I couldn't put in there because the people are alive. So I had to address those things, you know, with my mother, my uncle, um, the heroin addict, you know, my, my half-sister whose children I've adopted. There are things that are not in there, but I, it did open up conversations with my family, um, and I had to make sure that they were okay with some of the stuff that was in there. Um, so that was challenging. I think my mother was the hardest because even though she's sort of the hero of the story, it's clear that she wasn't there. She wasn't paying attention. She couldn't. She we were poor, but at the same time, that's what leaves a kid very open to being hurt. And so that was really hard for her, and we had some hard conversations. But in the end, it ended up being pretty healing. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, you keep, I don't say you keep doing it, but you've, you've done it a couple times, referred to your, your uncle as the heroin addict. <laughs> And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, I had I had issues with people who did drugs, and and I was thinking, you know, well, I had an uncle, the gambler, and and I was right. thinking about the way that you were referring to him, and the role that he played because he had recovered from yep. addiction, in your being able to get a grip and and move down a different path, um. It reminds me of a story I heard once about a guy who fell in a great big hole and the sides were so slick he couldn't climb out. And, um, you know, a doctor walks by and he said, hey, doc, can you help me out? And the doctor writes him a prescription and throws it down in the hole. Right. And, uh, you know, a priest walks by and he said, father, can you help me out? And he, he writes down a little prayer and throws it down in the hole. And then an old friend comes walking by and he says, hey, buddy. I'm stuck in this hole. Can you help me out? And the guy jumps in the hole. And he says, what are you, crazy? Now we're both stuck down here. And he goes, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. Oh, yeah. And and, and, and I just I thought of that story when <laughs> you talked about your uncle, the heroin addict. <laughs> yeah. And you know something, Tom, that was so interesting, because out of all the people in the book, I thought he was going to have the hardest time. His story is the most dark, if you will, in the book. And I thought he was going to have the hardest time. I, I had to call and I'm like, hey, are you okay with this? He's like, I'm not only okay with it, you missed a lot of detail. And he added, <laughs> he made it darker. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting because everyone else, my mom was so worried about what people were going to think of her. My sister was worried about people were, were going to think of her. My uncle, who because he went through the process of healing, he so owned his story. And so he, that because of that, just like you're saying, because he owned his life, because he owned his recovery, he was able to be there when I needed him. And so I opened the book with how judgmental I was towards people with addiction. It's really, it makes me look very bad. It's really ugly. But I had a really hard time with anyone who did drugs because drugs were such a just pervasive part of my upbringing, not just with my uncle, but many people in my yeah. life that made my surroundings dangerous. And they made me angry. And so I had a lot of healing and work to do around that. I, I, I just so admire people that can 
that can get past the the ugly parts of their life well enough to be able to share them with others. And kudos to you for that. Well, thank you. I think the vulnerability is, you know, looking at the happy parts of yourself don't help you. But when you can look at the dark parts of yourself and and just acknowledge them and embrace them and go and walk into that pain and say, you know, is this who I want to be? And just acknowledge that it's there, and that's where the healing begins. Well, it's it's absolutely fascinating. My my guest, and I'm going to see if I can say this right, is uh, Tana Amen. Um, that's it. <laughs> and she uh, has has written a memoir. She's already a New York Times bestseller, but she uh, um, earlier this year, well, in January, in fact, of this year, 2021. Um, came out with her memoir the relentless courage of a scared child how persistence grit and faith created a reluctant healer and um it's it's a a, an interesting story and and there are some interesting revelations in the book Um, tana thanks so much for sharing some of this uh, with me and the listeners today Oh, I really appreciate it, Tom. Thank you so much. And I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website, Tana? I do. So TanaAmon.com or AmonClinics.com. You can find out lots about us, and you can follow me on Instagram at TanaAmon. Well, T- Tana, this has been uh, a real pleasure and uh, and, a, and a privilege to talk with you. Best of luck with the book and all that you do. Thank you so much. And thank you. We'll uh, have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <laughs> Three more beats on the check. Hey, we want to present these buffs to our governor. Big hey. Grits. Hey. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Grits. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Grits. You can find her in the press under Big Grits. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Grits. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Grits. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Grits. At all. You can find her in the press under Big Grits. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Grits. Come on. Big Grits and this bitch playing no roles. At Excuse all. all the cussing, that's just how I get my flow on. For real. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Grits said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. irrelevant. Big Grits ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Uh-oh. Big Grits got him shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Grits with the buffs on on the lookout. Uh. And she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on that pair of buffs with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission. Throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Grits. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Grits. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Grits. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Grits. Throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Grits. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Grits. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Grits. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Grits.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and this hour we turn our uh, attention to neurodiversity and how tech companies are unlocking uh, the power of neurodiversity and embracing a rainbow of thought. And to talk about that, and probably a lot more, is uh, IBM's Chief Diversity Officer, Carla Grant Pickens, who joins me by phone. Carla, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask, and, and I feel like a dummy for asking this, because I have a vague notion, but perhaps you can define it better. What do we mean when we say neurodiversity? That's a great question. And look, this is where we all start by learning together. So look, neurodiversity is acceptance and respect for people with neurological differences. And so these differences can include autism. They can include attention deficit, hyperactivity, dyslexia, but they can also include things like speech or language or comprehension delay. And so it is a vast spectrum of many other neurological differences. And these individuals um, do not have a disease. So that's, let's be clear. They don't want to be cured of anything because there's nothing that they have to be cured. They're different, right? But they don't want to be thought less than. But historically, we have thought of them as less than. Uh, people uh, in human resources would screen them out very early in the interviewing process for jobs. Why is it important to change those habits we are really missing out on untapped talent that have amazing skills to offer many organizations and skills. And so we have to really start by removing these barriers for them to have the opportunity to be able to compete for jobs. And you're right. They, they've been screened out of the process. So this starts with taking the necessary steps at the candidate stage to remove barriers for entry into the workforce. How do you uh, get people to um, accept the fact that that people who are different are not slow in some way, as they might have been called a couple decades ago? Um, you know that that somehow they're not able to contribute at the same pace. Yeah, so, so that's such a great question. There's so many myths about and misconceptions about this community. And so um, it's important to be more open-minded and accepting. And, and what that means is some of the things that we hear often, like they have limited work abilities, um, difficulty communicating, difficulty with fitting in with the workplace or teams or socially or culturally or less successful or resilient. And so we are finding this to be very, very far from the truth. We are also finding from research that this community is growing. So acceptance is really necessary. So one in 50 people are autistic. And then the ratio begins to decline when you include all of the different neural 
logical differences, it, it goes to about 1 in 20 people. So this means we really need to be able to show up and remove these barriers um, and provide, like, tools to support success in the workplace um, and accommodations to, to really be able to drive that. that. That looks like education and training of your HR teams, your hiring managers. And it also means providing tools to support success, but also removing the barriers and having people to have a safe and supportive environment to be able to say that they are neurodivergent and what help they need to be successful as well. How are we able to include more people in a workforce that is um, being challenged? And you work in the technology field, and, and you know mm-hmm. and hear and read about uh, you know evolving artificial intelligence and all the things that you know may be replacing people. In the, in the workplace, we've seen it a lot in uh, production, but we're seeing it in other forms of uh, uh, potential employment as well. Um, how do we how do we be more inclusive in a world that seems to be trying to be less inclusive? Yeah, you're right. You're right. So look, the current unemployment and underemployment rate for U.S. college graduates. Neurodivergent community members is about 80%. And this is just sad. It's so sad. It's staggering. And we can do so much in changing this narrative, all of us. So the first step is to really remove any barriers to traditional ways of interviewing candidates. So we start with not allowing for the online um, application and assessment, and as well as the structured interview where you tick boxes. Let's move outside of boxes and provide opportunities to have a conversation about skills and capabilities with our neurodivergent um, candidates and figure out where they will best thrive in the job that they're applying for or other jobs for which they may be a match for. So it's matching the skills and capabilities. We have some really amazing talent, intelligent, amazing talent that we are probably absolutely not tapping into. You also, like I state, you want to train your teams that are interacting with that community. You want to provide signature experiences so that when they onboard, that they come in and they have safe spaces and places that they can communicate with one another. They have events. They have um, channels for which they can talk to one another and share their experiences and tips for success. You also want to provide allies, mentoring, and training. We also provide what we call our Neural Diversity 101 Learning Bundle for all of our employees. It's about education and awareness and acceptance. And this education allows our employees to figure out how they can show up for this community and be better. And you can get a badge and then display that badge to support this community. We really harness and tap into this talent to mentor and coach and help grow the careers uh, for this talent. We're also a tech company, right? And so we're helping other companies to make their software and their tools more neurodivergent friendly. We're looking at the way that we show up. We provide accessible workplace uh, tools like noise-canceling uh, headphones. could be a tool uh, that someone could use so that they could be concentrating on their work at hand. Flexible work schedules. Um, not being able to 
sit for a long period of time and providing flexibility of work so you don't have to work in the end for eight hours. And you could take more meaningful breaks to be more resilient um, and take your work in smaller uh, bites opposed to having to complete the whole work day in the end. So you could just be more flexible uh, about how we're going to allow people to really be successful. And those are just a few examples. And, and those are great examples. Do you have any um, specific examples? And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking for success stories, obviously, without using any names. But as Chief Diversity Officer for IBM, um, are, are there some stories that you're familiar with specifically of uh, some things that um, where making these accommodations has led to this this rainbow of thought that I referenced earlier. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually just published our diversity and inclusion report, and we actually showcased um, some amazing talent who shared their IBM stories. And we do, you know, we have many people, and we do fireside chats, and a more recent um, employee really shared their story about not actually being diagnosed as neurodivergent until he was an adult mid-career and had so many challenges. And he uh, read my blog about me sharing about family members in my family um, and how it was so important to be able to show up as your whole self and that we had so many tools to support the journey. And he wrote me a note and he said, you've given me an opportunity to really find my voice, not to be ashamed. I'm a recent person who's been diagnosed as neurodivergent, and I was unaware that we had support and tools for me, for my family, and for others, and this is going to help me be better, and this is making me feel more confident um, and being more open about who I am, and so that's what we want to do. We want people to be able to, we're all different, right, show up. Do your best, be your best, and, and that we provide that support for people to feel that they can. That increases engagement in your company, inclusion. That's going to create lots of success and um, motivation for people to want to do great work for you and your company. Now, throughout the, uh, the last year and a half or so, um, wrestling with issues uh, surrounding the, the pandemic and COVID-19 and so on, um, I, I can't help but wonder um, if we keep hearing people talking about when everything gets back to what people are hoping is normal, but it's being referred to as a new normal. Um, is there such a thing as normal anymore? <laughs> you know, you and I both are on the same page today. You know, I don't. I just think that there is an opportunity for us to embrace differences, right? See, I was thinking um, about a question, like, Carla, I was thinking about a question yeah. about how normal employees react to people that might be identified as neurodivergent. And I thought, wait a minute, what is normal? And so I thought maybe That's we right. just open that up a little bit more instead of my making yes. that, that clumsy uh, question. And we'll have more coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour with IBM Chief Diversity Offer, Officer Carl.
Carla Grant Pickens. Also coming up in the next hour, we will uh, be talking uh, with the founder of Funeralocity. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. (laughs) 